The Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 8, no, 11 through 21. To give you an ever so brief context of the passage here, you know in the Old Testament, when the word shepherd is used, it, do you know what it usually refers to? It's usually referring to kings. Kings were considered shepherds. A good shepherd feeds his sheep. A bad shepherd, a bad king, preys on his sheep. A good shepherd is one who is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. A bad shepherd is one who thinks that the sheep serve him and they're willing to sacrifice the sheep on their behalf. Of the 42 kings that reigned in Israel from about 1000 BC to 586 BC when the Israelites were taken off into captivity in Babylon. You see, how many good shepherds lived over those five centuries? And the answer is a handful. Three, four, five, I mean, very few. In almost all of the instances, you had a bad shepherd, a bad political leader. And you say, some things never change, do they? It's a fitting metaphor for political and religious leaders today. I shake my head in disbelief at some of the ridiculous headlines that I read about. There was a pastor who asked each member of his congregation to donate $300 so he could buy a $65 million Gulfstream jet. Did you read that one? Because the Lord told him, you know, he was supposed to have a G6. And so everybody, you know, contribute to my my Gulfstream fund. You see, that type of stuff, it seems like, um, you see, why would you even want to be a pastor when you share that kind of company? <laughs> why would you ever want to be a politician when you have such a bad reputation? If you are here this morning and you have been burned by bad leadership, then I completely understand why you would be skeptical about a person like me and skeptical about all of this. What you need to know is that in John chapter 10, Jesus is saying, I'm not like that. He's not like that. He is the good shepherd king. He's not like the scribes and Pharisees and the King Herods of his day, but he's coming to be, well, this, verse 11, the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd. He does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, the hired hand abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf comes and attacks the flock and scatters the flock. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen, referring to the Gentiles. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. They will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life. And here's then the reference to the resurrection. I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. 
This command I receive from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? All right, let me start out with a a little uh, comparison. It's the comparison between a cowboy and a shepherd. He rears his horse to a stop on the rim of the canyon with a sun-leathered face caked in dust and a wide-brimmed hat perched atop his head. One thousand head of cattle pass behind him. One thousand miles of trail lie before him. One thousand women would love to hold him. But he's too free for that. He's the American hero. Who am I speaking of? It's interesting because cowboys and shepherds share, obviously, a number of similar qualities, don't they? Let's list these. Both are rugged men. Both are accustomed to long hours, cold nights, rainy, muddy terrain. Both live out under the stars. The stars are their roofs at night. Both make their living around animals. Both have to protect those animals from predators and from predatory people. Both are always on duty 24-7, always having to be alert, always on guard. I'm sure if you wanted to, you could go through and list quite a number of other similarities between cowboys and shepherds. But then you step back and you realize the, the differences are rather vast. Cowboys don't intimately know their animals, do they? They don't love their animals, at least not touchy-feely love, do they? You've never seen a picture of a cowboy caressing a steer. You've never seen a picture of of a cowboy laying down beside uh, the, the cow. I mean... Have you ever seen a picture of a shepherd doing that? Well, yeah, you have. Have you ever seen a picture of a shepherd caressing a sheep? Why the difference? The difference is because one is is a far more intimate, tender, and loving relationship. I mean, the thing that we love about cowboys is, is they can wrestle their animals. Cowboys are tough on their animals. A cowboy wrestles. A cowboy brands. A cowboy herds and ropes, intimidates. A cowboy hoops and hollers and fires his six-shooter up in the air, cracks his whip over the back of the animals. A cowboy drives. He drives his cattle. He pushes the cattle. He herds the cattle. And none of that could be used to describe a shepherd, could it? So shepherds in the area of the, in terms of the Bible's time, in that era of history, they, they found that their sheep were kind of like family pets. And it's actually found, if you go back and read some of the literature of that day, shepherds would have personal names for their sheep. You can, you can read it. They would call their sheep 
names like long ears and white nose and fluffy tail or whatever. But you could have an entire group of sheep grazing over on Simplot's Hill there, and the shepherd could call out long ears, and, and just like a dog, the thing would walk back to him. Now, you've never seen a cowboy do that. Just like you've never seen a shepherd lasso the head of a sheep. Never seen a shepherd pin their sheep to the ground and stick a flaming hot piece of metal until it sizzles into its, its skin. No, what you find a shepherd doing is he anoints the sheep's eyes when they're suffering from an eye infection. A shepherd tenderly binds the animal's feet when they are suffering from hoof rot. And it got me thinking this week. What does it say about the difference between our two cultures when the hero of America and Western Americana is the cowboy and, and the biblical hero is the shepherd? Like, how far removed are we from them? One other very important difference, and Jesus, I think he touches on it there in verses 14 through 18. You can have dozens of cowboys, right? Dozens of cowboys on a cattle drive, and a, a flock of sheep have how many shepherds? And he knows them, and they know him. And you read about it in the literature. They, they know his voice, yes. They know his smell. They know his scent. And he knows them. My guess, and I, I mean, it's, we're not trying to say, are we, that cowboys are ruthless towards their animals and they don't have any regard whatsoever for cows. No, they, they do have regard for the animal, but I would hasten a bet that cowboys don't know their animals nearly so intimately, nearly so personally, and they probably don't even want to know their animals that well because what is a cowboy doing with that animal? He's leading it to slaughter. He wants it for its meat. I mean, do you really want to get personal with a dog that you know that you're going to be eating in 24 hours? And what is a shepherd looking for? He's looking for a little bit of wool. And so he develops a very personal knowledge of each animal. And it's God's way of saying to us, I know you. It's a wonderful word to hear today because that's one of the deepest desires that we have as human beings. We want to be known by somebody. It's hard to be known in a world that's so big. I mean, you don't expect your government to know you. I mean, as far as the government is concerned, you're just a social security number. You're a tax filing status. And you're fine with that, relatively speaking, because there's 300 million people here. I mean, what could... What can you expect? Well, there's 7 billion people here also. But your creator knows you. He says, I know you're rising up and you're sitting down. Even before a word is formed on your lips, I know you. You have a shepherd who says, I know all of your circumstances. I, I know all your birthmarks. I know all of your markings. That's significant when you consider that you're just an insignificant, an insignificant little sheep in a world of seven billion sheep on an insignificant planet in one 
very tiny galaxy, and the Creator God knows your name. He knows you by name. When was the last time that made you breathless? I mean, there are people here, you're here, some of you have heard a hundred Good Shepherd sermons in your life. And I'm not telling you something you don't know, but what I want you to do with the metaphor is you take it and you run with it, and you, you make yourself sort of breathless with it again. When was the last time you meditated enough on something like this that it began to deeply affect you emotionally or mentally where you communicated it back to him in prayer with just sort of that amazing I can't believe this aspect in the way that that you spoke he knows me I can't believe it or when was the last time you just shared that the sheer surprise of it with somebody else You ask yourself the question, do I relate to Jesus Christ like this? Do I relate to him like this? Uh, Or do I, and here I might be pushing the metaphor too too far, but, or do I relate to him like a cow does a cowboy? Because I do, I've met a lot of Christians who sort of relate to God on those, on those levels. They really, there is, where's the intimacy? Where's the, where's the personal relationship? It's like you flinch when he's nearby. You get yourself distant away from him. That's a cow cowboy. He's this square-jawed ranch hand who's driving you to places that you don't want to go. Is he hostile and rough on you? Maybe your situation is like the situation of a guy I read about this week. It's a story that we've probably heard a number of times. Maybe it's our story. He said, I grew up in church as a kid. I was a church-going kid. Mom took me there every Sunday. And I was absolutely, this is actually a British guy. So he went to, he went to church, to the Anglican church, because that's what his, for centuries his family had been doing. He says, I go there every Sunday. And as a kid, I was absolutely bored out of my mind. During the sermon, I would count the number of bricks on the wall behind the pastor as he was preaching. I would go up, count until I lost focus at the top in the, in the shadows, and then I'd come back down again. He said, I was convinced that if Jesus was my shepherd, I would die of boredom. I believed that the best thing I could do is avoid the shepherd. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I have come that they might have life in abundance. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He said, well, I had it completely the other way around. I thought Jesus comes to, to kill, steal, and destroy. And if I can get away from that kind of religious authority then I might have life to the full. I believed as a teenager that to become a Christian was to cripple yourself. Christians, at least Christians in Britain, it seemed, were against everything that is fun, enjoyable, pleasurable, and fattening. He said to become a Christian is to shrivel up into some kind of narrow-minded, dried-up boredom. He goes on, but that's, that's the gist of it. And that might be... If that's, if that's what you think, some people perceive God that way. I'm very sorry if that's you. Some people perceive him as the ranch hand with the heavy hands. and I'm sorry if that's you. Um, I don't think you really know him if that's you. 
one of the questions, so I came up with this, if you're in a community group at All Saints, and your community group discusses the sermon, this is actually a question that you could ask and talk around the table later today if you wanted to. It's the question of what is the metaphor, if I was to pick one dominant metaphor that characterizes how I relate to God or to Jesus Christ, what is that metaphor? What was that metaphor when I was a kid? And what is that metaphor today? And why have they changed? How have they changed? And if that metaphor is not that he is my good shepherd, I must be missing something critical about him. When they go and they survey the Roman catacombs where the early Christians worshipped, where you look at basically first, second, and I think at least first and second century Christian art, the frescoes and the paintings on cups and stuff. The second most depicted event is the resurrection of Lazarus. And the number one depicted event, 85 different pictures of Jesus with lambs. It's Jesus, that was the dominant metaphor of the church in the first century. If that doesn't register somewhere on your radar, why is that? Okay, I want to go back to Psalm 23, which we read earlier in the service. Psalm 23, it, this is the passage that you, it gets read at pretty much every funeral. It's the most famous and the most loved of the Psalms, probably because it evokes deep yearnings inside of each one of us. And I want to cover these briefly. Each of these. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Green pastures. That metaphor is uh, large, grassy meadows, which is a metaphor of abundance. He feeds me with abundance. All that makes life flourishing is where my shepherd uh, takes me to. And what's noteworthy, probably most noteworthy in that image, is what is the sheep doing? Is he, is he running around, playing tag, chasing? He might be, but, but in that image, he's lying down. The only time a sheep is going to lie down is if it feels pretty darn safe and secure. So I'm in this place of abundance that my shepherd's taken me, and I feel safe and secure. I'm lying there. Then he leads me beside quiet waters. He walks me alongside Quiet or still waters, not a raging torrent. If, you, if you're carrying 15 pounds of wool on your back and you fall into the water, you're a goner. <laughs> you're not going to survive. You're definitely not going to survive if there's a pretty heavy current coming through. But no, he lets you go to a place where you can drink and there's not a threat. Then it says that he restores my soul. So much of this life is spent just wanting to get our souls restored. Wanting to be cared for. We go through this life just longing for a shepherd, don't we? We marry um, hoping that all of our needs are going to be taken care of. That he will restore my soul. And 
And maybe just the opposite ends up happening, and they end up being the ones who abuse and exploit us. Or we look to a friend to fulfill the role, we, restore my soul, and they end up, we walk away from that relationship feeling depleted. And here he says, no, the shepherd restores my soul. He takes me to places where I can get my life back again. Then, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the picture here is of a very deep ravine where the sun never gets to the bottom of the ravine because it's too dark down there. It's the shadowy, dark place. It's the place of death, the valley of the shadow of death. One of the biggest fears we have in in this life is the fear of untimely death isn't it? Either our own untimely death, I'm going to die early of a heart attack, I just know it. Some of us are hypochondriacs. We really fear that. Or the untimely death of a loved one. If they die prematurely, the psalmist seems to be in the valley of cancer. He's in the valley of leukemia. He's in the valley of dialysis. He's in some really dark place. And he he says, I fear no evil because you are near me. And it's the nearness of the shepherd's presence in the valley of death. It's deeply consoling. The, the next one, I hope these aren't too slow for you. Maybe they're, I'm not going through them quickly enough. But he says, you prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies. And I've always wondered, what is that metaphor trying to say? I assumed that it's the picture of the psalmist mocking his enemies, sort of standing on the battle lines and bringing out a a table or a picnic blanket and sort of calling out to the guys over there, hey, you, you know, look what we're doing right now. We feel so safe and secure that we can can have breakfast in front of you. But Derek Kigner, in his brilliant commentary on the psalms, says, and he's probably right, the, the battle isn't about to begin, but the battle is over here, and the enemies are conquered. They're nothing more than captives looking on as my shepherd prepares the victory feast. I love that. And the Lord's Supper, as we're about to enjoy it in just a couple minutes, is the victory feast. The more I thought about it, the more I realized the Lord's Supper is kind of a microcosm of all of Psalm 23. It's at the Lord's Supper that I discover that I do not want. It's the Lord's Supper. I I eat in green pastures. I drink at still waters. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life because goodness and mercy have met me every Sunday for the last 40 years of my life at that table. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I know that because for the last 50 years, I've dwelled at the Lord's table. And it's supposed to say that to you. So to recap thus far, you have the imagery of the intimacy and the person, the intimate personal knowledge that the shepherd has with the sheep. You have the tender loving care that the shepherd has for the sheep. And then there is the rod and the staff and the obvious point that sheep need a protector. There have been many people who have pointed out the fact that sheep can't cope alone. 
Uh, sheep are like turtles without a shell. <laughs> you know, they have no armor, and they have no claws, and they have no speed. They can't outrun their predators. They're turtles without a shell. With no sense of direction, they get lost. I'm told, kind of like turtles, that if they get flopped on their back, and they can't get over again, if they're stuck on their back, they end up dying. Sheep die on their back, and and sheep die for some of the craziest reasons. So there was a story a couple of years back that came out of Turkey. It was, did you hear this one? A shepherd was, he walked away for breakfast one morning while his sheep were off grazing on a bluff. Bad idea. And he, maybe he gathered up, he was with a couple of other shepherds and a couple of herds had gathered you know, joined up. And they sat there eating their breakfast and one lone sheep decides to jump off the bluff, off the cliff, and then a second and a third. And all told, 1,500 sheep plummet like lemmings off of the cliff. This is a true story. This is Turkey, like in 2005. 1,500 sheep dive. 500 of those sheep die because... The rest of them, as it went on, would just bounce off the carcasses of the other. But, I mean, it was devastating for these people. This, they said they lost $100,000 in, in income there. These were the sheep of several different villages. They said afterward when they were being interviewed that, that there's nothing left. We, every family had an average of 20 sheep, and only a few families have any sheep left. $100,000 loss in a country where the a- average annual salary is $3,000. And it's, that struck me. Struck me. Um, the best thing the Good Shepherd does is save us from ourselves. He saves us from ourselves. And the propensity that we've used this image a lot in our church of sheep, they love to go after poisonous weeds. Sheep love to wander off and get lost or caught in, in the thicket. Apparently, sheep love to jump off of tall buildings. And if you, there's that predatory, there, there's not only predators, but there's the predatory me. If you know anything about yourself, you know about the predatory me. And what you have to appreciate about this metaphor of the Good Shepherd, all the burden for protection and rescue falls on his shoulders and not your own. That's the great thing about a shepherd is that he is he does everything that is necessary for the sheep to be protected and secured. And the the wisest sheep in the world, what is, what are they going to do? They're just going to like jump into the shepherd's arms. They're going to entrust themselves utterly and entirely to their shepherd. I mean, it means that they don't consider the shepherd a business associate or a partner. He's He's their Lord, so to speak, but he's their protecting and loving Lord. And they, he does everything that's necessary to save them. I came across the startling statistic. Get a load of this. 99% of this demographic of adults surveyed, 99% said that they are happy with, them, with their lives. 97% of them answered yes to the question, do you like who you are? of them agreed with the statement, do you you love your family? Yes. Who are these happy people? 
Who could possibly be a demographic candidate? Have you ever heard of anybody ethnically or economically or educationally or a? Have you ever heard of any group of adults who are that happy with their lives? Who are these people? They're those who suffer from Down syndrome. The happiest people in the world are those who suffer from Down syndrome. Now, in using this, I'm, I don't at all want to minimize the hardship of that disease and, and all of the related hardships to it. But it struck me, what does somebody with Down syndrome do? They, 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 they rely entirely on their caregiver, don't they? Their mother, their father, their brother is their good shepherd. And they, 100%, you've never seen somebody with Down syndrome, you know, beat back the wolf with their rod and their staff because they don't have a rod and staff. They entrust themselves entirely to their shepherds. And it makes for a very happy way of living. Finally, how can you tell if a sheep has a good shepherd? How do you tell if they're... Oh yeah, that sheep's got a good shepherd. The answer, simply, is that they're healthy. They're well-fed. They're protected. They are... They don't always get to do what they want to do. They, a sheep with a good shepherd might want to spend the morning in the sheep pen and not go out into the pasture. You might want to dawdle around and, and sleep in, but... No, they don't get to do what they want to do, but, but if you have a good shepherd, you are growing, you're healthy, you're flourishing. Even if you go through a period of, of suffering, if you're following a good shepherd, you thrive and grow. And John chapter 10 is Jesus' way of saying, if you come under my leadership, you will thrive and grow. Under my leadership, you will be well taken care of. If you entrust yourself to me, um, like this, you will, you will experience my peace. A couple of years back, we had Dennis and Margie Hack, who uh, they came into our church and they did a conference. Great speakers. Margie has written for years this this little monthly newsletter letter called Notes from Toad Hall. Wind in the Willows, Notes from Toad Hall. I haven't read it recently. I don't know if she's still putting it out. But a while back, she had a dear friend of hers who was, who was suffering from inoperable terminal leukemia. And she gave her a column. You can write a, a weekly or a monthly column in Notes, for to, to, uh, notes for to, from Toad Hall. And she had this just great Good Shepherd statement. She said, she said, I'm not particularly anxious or sad about my leukemia despite the fact that that's what kind of everybody around me expects me to be. I'm not. I have known since I was 12 that my days are in God's hands. And I have every confidence. I've had it since 12. Confidence in God's wisdom and his choice for my future. I know that he will heal me if he thinks it's best and that he will take me home if he thinks it's best. But my days are in his hands. And in the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not alone. Brian, uh, our associate pastor, has gone this weekend. He is officiating the funeral of his granddad. He's very close to his granddad. And when I told him earlier in the week that I was preaching John 10, he said, that's my favorite passage in like, all the Bible. I love John 10. He said, he said, I've always thought of the wolf in that passage as death. And when the wolf comes growling 
the rest of the world's religions and, and philosophies, they're like the hired hands. When the wolf comes to attack, they flee. They leave you. Philosophy and science, they say, good luck, you're on your own. <laughs> and what does a good shepherd do? He steps between you and the wolf, and he lays down his life for his sheep. The good shepherd is devoured in this metaphor so that his sheep might scamper off and live eternally. The whole of the Bible is the unfolding of this great story of God sending someone into your world who does absolutely everything to rescue you. And some of you, you'll spend your whole life looking for somebody like that when he's been here all along or trying to be that for yourself. You'll try to be that sort of shepherd for yourself because you want to be rescued. You want a good shepherd. You want to be cared for and led. All of us do. But there's only one when the wolf comes that's willing to lay his life down for you. The cowboy leads the cattle to slaughter the hired hand leaves the sheep to the wolves. The good shepherd sacrifices himself for long ears, and white nose, those he calls by name, those he, though he, those he knows, those who know him. Amen.